thinking that everything that was in Europe was better than was going on outside. But we realized that the Incas were extremely advanced in many areas uh, compared to what was happening in Europe at the time. And, you know, they were both advanced versus other parts of the world, but also within the context of the uh, South American and the American continent. Welcome to Innovational Correctness, a podcast all about innovation and transformation, hosted by David Luna, author, keynote speaker, and founder of Gamma Digital and Beyond. David and his guests discuss real-world practical advice on how to best harness the creativity of your employees and go from idea to product, giving you unique perspectives and insights into their success, all while separating hype from reality and replacing bullshit bingo with common sense. Let's jump right in to the show. Welcome back. This is another episode of the Innovational Correctness Podcast. This episode explores why organizations rise and fall by interviewing the two authors of the book, The Illusion of Invincibility, The Rise and Fall of Organizations, inspired by the Incas of Peru, trying to answer the fundamental challenge that all organizations have. How do established companies continue to stay competitive and innovate within an ever-changing environment? My guests today are Andreas Krebs and Paul Williams. Andreas Krebs is an entrepreneur and international experience manager and an expert on leadership, globalization, and entrepreneurship. He is one of the few Germans that have made it to the executive board of Big Pharma in corporate America. He currently runs his own venture capital business, which invests in young startups. Andreas also held various international leadership positions with Bayer AG and the Worth Corporation, serving on the main board in the United States, where he was responsible for more than 8,000 employees in 96 countries. From 2010 to 2019, he was the chairman of the board at Merits and holds various board positions. In addition, he dedicates his time as a chairman to the private NGO Girasol, supporting children and young people living in poverty in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Paul Williams is also an international experience manager, executive coach, and entrepreneur. Since 2003, he has also been a managing partner at the consulting firm Paul Williams & Associate, which specializes in leadership coaching, self-management, and organizational development. In the pharmaceutical division at Bayer he held positions in international sales, marketing, and general management in Europe, Australasia, the United States, the Middle East, and Africa. Andreas and Paul, as two very experienced and successful managers, will help us answer the following question. Why do organizations rise and fall, and what are the reasons for their success and failure? So in this podcast, we'll try to answer some of the following questions and see what Andreas and Paul have to say about these topics, what we can learn from the Incas, when it comes to long-term survival of companies, why successful companies fail despite them being market leaders in their respective industries, what makes a successful CEO, how the ego of CEOs can become a huge problem, how the career progression of top managers can make it harder for them to stay grounded in reality, how management by walking around can help us with that, what the biggest mistakes are that are made during hiring processes, and finally, what their top three recommendations are for CEOs that want to avoid a future decline of their company. I'd also like to apologize in advance for the spotty audio quality of this episode. We had some connection issues, which I only found out in post, which isn't bad at all, but just be forewarned. And just a quick reminder, I want to make this podcast much more interactive. So what does that mean? You can either suggest a guest or topic or send your feedback via email or even better as a voice message. This allows me to add your feedback to the podcast where all listeners can profit from your feedback and my response. 
Just go to innovationalcorrectness.com and click on either suggest guest or topic or leave voice message. Or if you prefer, just send an email to info at gammabeyond.com. Also, stay tuned until the end, where I, as always, try to reflect on the interview and extract the key takeaways for you. Without further ado, let's jump right into the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Andreas and Paul. Thank you for taking the time to come onto the podcast. And maybe we can start off by, you know, you telling the listeners something about yourselves. Yeah, I'm Andreas Krebs. I live here near Cologne, between Cologne and Düsseldorf. I'm an entrepreneur. I have a company who invests in small startups in the seed and uh, growth phase. Obviously, we have uh, enjoying very now our, uh, our book we wrote. Yeah, this is Paul Williams. I'm from the UK originally, came across to Germany in the mid-80s to work for Bayer for 20 years, which I did in operational management and HR. For the last 15 years, I've been running my own company, focusing on uh, organizational development, and I also work as, a, as an executive coach. Okay, great. So, Paul, uh, you're actually a biologist by trade. So how did that come to be? <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I studied biology, but I decided uh, I couldn't see myself staying in an academic type of career. And uh, I managed to get myself a good trainee position at Bayer in the UK, being in management trainee position. So I basically uh, took, a different, took a different route, but it was a good background for me because I, I spent 20 years in the pharmaceutical division. So I was always able to, uh, to understand the technical side of the business without actually having uh, actually being in what you would call research or development area. So you have no regrets? None whatsoever, no. So you two wrote a book called The Illusion of Invincibility, The Rise and Fall of Organizations Inspired by the Incas of Peru. And obviously, as the title suggests, the book is about the rise and fall of organizations and the reason for their success and failure. And not too long ago, I wrote a guide why companies need to eat their children about why companies get disrupted in an almost, you know, seemingly predictable fashion and not only outlined some of the reasons, most of them were not related to technology, but also suggested some of the organizational leadership strategies to avoid a future decline. And that's where I reached out to Andreas and to you two, because I thought it might be interesting to invite you two onto the podcast and bring in your perspective on on this topic. But what I think makes your book so unique is that it adds additional layers and nuances of why companies fail, because most of the time it's just some external factor that's discussed, such as disruptive technology. And sure, that can, can explain some of the reasons of a company's decline, but surely not all. So the challenge is for all companies, how do established companies continue to stay competitive and innovative within, say, an ever-changing environment? But before we get into detail, Tell us what made you write the book in the first place. Yeah, it's an interesting story and important to understand because it's uh, any of the listeners will be wondering how two managers decided to start writing about the Incas. I basically uh, was asked by one of my clients to coach a lady who was going to be taking over the general management position in Peru for the, the company. And uh, that was a classical job for me. Interesting part was that the head of global sales and marketing said that uh, he wanted friends about this, one of them being Andreas, a few weeks beforehand. And they said, uh, well, you can't just spend three days in Peru. You need to have a look at the country. And to cut the long story short, it turned into a trip afterwards. So I basically did my job and then Andres and some other friends, my own wife, 
uh, came and we spent 10 days traveling through through Peru. And while we were visiting one particularly interesting archaeological site, Tipon, uh, our guide was telling us about how the Incas proceeded, how they went about running their empire, and uh, mentioned a couple of things that really made our ears prick up. We mentioned, they mentioned the fact that the Incas, they were an acquisitive people, so they were taking over other tribes and peoples on them, but they did it in a slightly different way. They made a friendly offer, first of all. They said, look, you know, we can do this together and everybody will benefit, or we can do it aggressively with the 12,000 troops that I have standing behind me. So that was the first, first point that uh, gained our interest. The second was once they'd taken over this people, they would then look at what the, the new tribe does better than the Incas themselves. So they'd look at the sort of the best of uh, and would then integrate it into their culture and society. And this is in real contrast to many other acquisitive empires and also in business. And one of us said, one of us said just for fun, you know, you could, you could transport those ideas into modern business. We laughed about it, but out of this joke, we ended up uh, <laughs> deciding to write a book based on these initial impulses. Um, and we then did some research and came up with some other areas, uh, which each of which became a chapter in the book and gave us the structure for the book. Very interesting. So how has the feedback to your book been so far? Yeah, we had tremendous feedback. You know, we were, so it's our, it was our first book and uh, we were anxious to sort of getting feedback where people write to us and people call us and uh, they, uh, they've been approaching us in different ways of social media and we had very good press response in the first place. But we also got wonderful responses and mainly because we also tried one of the ideas of writing the book and principles of writing the book was that we want to have a book which is fun to read with a lot of black humor and our own experiences, good ones and stuff where we could have done a better job. And we also interviewed about 20 people and the feedback is mainly around that one of the readers wrote that for the first time she was able to accept the recommendation because they were written on on eye level and not necessarily with a you know finger wagging or, or somebody who you know tells the reader that that's the way to do it and uh, and also as we opened up very much of, of our own you know challenges throughout our careers that was very well received by by the readers and uh, you know, some readers called us for inviting them inviting us in their companies all presentations and speeches and uh, uh, and that's that's wonderful. Yeah, I can actually attest to that. There were quite a few sections in the book that uh, made me laugh just because you brought in your experience. As you said, it's, it's an eye level. It's not uh, follow these steps and then you'll be successful. But uh, you were also you were sharing some of your vulnerability and some of the mistakes that you made. Oh, thank you. What were some of the things that particularly surprised you about the Incas during your stay there, during your research? Well, I mean, to be frank, uh, just about everything, because um, neither of us knew much about the Incas at all. So everything we learned was new. And uh, what we realized was that we'd probably been mentally fairly arrogant from our European perspective. Uh, and then in fact, you know, we're talking about the 12th and 15th century, uh, thinking that everything that was in Europe was better than was going on outside. But we realized that the Incas were extremely advanced in many areas uh, compared to what was happening in Europe at the time. And, you know, they were both advanced versus other parts of the world, but also within the context of the uh, South American and the American continent. And I mean, you know, they had uh, Archaeologists are absolutely convinced, for instance, that the, the Incas had a form of welfare system that was different to anything that was currently happening on time in Europe. Uh, they, you know, if, if a soldier was lost, the father of a family, then then the, not just the family itself, but the whole community would, would gather around and make sure the family was cared for and was well fed. They were also extremely involved in their communication systems, uh, not just roads and things that 
would automatically associate with the communication at that time, but also certain things called kipus, which was a, a string-tying way of communication uh, with each other, which in fact to this day has not been solved and decoded by archaeologists. So, so lots of surprises and very inspirational uh, aspects of their, of their culture. How was the society of the Incas and the way they ran their empires similar or different to do what we see today in society and business? Yeah, what's important to understand that book is not an analogy book. And what we didn't really want to transmit is that this, we like this particular behavior of the Incas or the way they, they work, you know, the succession planning and the way they nice society to compare it with today's life because it or just like a recommendation do it like the Incas did it a long time ago because they were also you know at the end of the day disrupted and you have to see it with their eyes and their time in their time so we use it as a kind of impulse for certain chapters but we don't really recommend certain stages do it like the Incas did it you know 500 years ago yeah I think that's kind of difficult because they you know obviously they, they had different constraints back then and we have different constraints today but maybe you can share some of the things that made them successful yeah sure as I touched on just now communications was clearly very advanced they were also extremely well organized they had a very good balance of centralist organization but also local lords um, were, were also empowered to to run things properly so this was this was a major observation but perhaps one of the things that stuck in our minds most was that they they had essentially a vision one of the inspirations for chapter one in the book which is all about vision and they basically said bring they wanted to bring order to the world and if you imagine we're talking 11th 13th century this is a very attractive proposition to other tribes around them sort of the chaos of that time that the incas were saying yeah we'll bring order to the world i'm sure you get fed looked after and um and they gave a sort of a why why would it be better to work with us and under us than to compete with us uh, or to challenge us so so this was a this was one of the major inspirations was like andrea said we didn't want to take analogies but we used each of these impulses and and inspirations to say okay that could be an interesting chapter so like i said chapter one was all about vision and the incas brought order into the world that was their offer so you highlighted some of things that made them unique and successful and seemingly they ran a, a very powerful empire but if they were so successful what were the reasons why they failed or for their later decline yeah that's uh that's very it's like we, we call it uh disruptive change in today's world you know at the end of the day they had uh, Pizarro Spanish conqueror he came with 180 soldiers and 20 horses so and the Incas had about 12,000 uh, army of about 12,000 people so why do how did he defeat them and how he basically f infiltrated them there were two half brothers basically fighting each other succession planning was not organized her, the, her father the father of the two half brothers died without having clear clearly stated who should be the next Inca so they were fighting each other they were vulnerable and uh, and weak so um, Pizarro's allied with one of the half brothers defeated the other one and then captured that one and they were very had a very vertical organization so they were basically looked up the Inca was not anymore uh, this is the way basically the empire fall apart and the Spanish took over so if you look at kind of there there's some maybe analogy to today's organizations and we, we cover that in one of our chapters that you know really the enemies sort of or 
all competition is outside and, and fighting each other internally uh, only takes away resources and make weak as an organization. But they had, and obviously also the Spanish, they had never seen horses. Uh, the Incas never seen horses and, and the weapons uh, the Spanish brought along. So they admired them for quite some time without understanding their, the reasons why really the Spanish, what they were looking for. And at the end, it was all about gold and, and silver and uh, resources they were looking for. Fascinating. You kind of touched on the Incas, but also uh, moved over to today's companies. What are some of the reasons of why companies fail, despite them being market leaders in their respective industries? Can you maybe give us some examples, maybe even some lesser known ones? Yeah, let me start with a better known one, which is sort of very obvious because all of us had, uh, had most of us, I sort of 99%, probably all listeners had a, at one time a Nokia phone. You know, if you look at, at Forbes magazine in November 2007, that's only uh, sort of 12, 13 years ago, on the front page, there was a picture of the CEO of Nokia and the headline was Nokia, 1 billion customers, who can beat the cell phone king? So, or 6 billion customers, actually, 6 billion people on the on this planet, the Nokia phone, somewhere. But, uh, Active, uh, uh, active contract, etc. So, if you look at uh, what happened, it's basically lack of innovation. They were top of the world, and they were not really accepting game-changing strategies like when when uh, uh, Apple came along. It's actually one billion customers. Nokia had one billion customers uh, at that time, and uh, and then also you have uh, you know disruptive things like with Lehman Brothers at who you know did hide 50 billion in loans which they sort of distinguished as sales and uh, it is difficult to see because uh, you know uh, one year before the outbreak of the financial crisis Lehman Brothers was ranked the number one most admired securities firm by the Fortune magazine so it's not necessary internal stuff it's also from the outside view um, things sometimes look different than they appear and uh, let's take Maybe also another one, maybe not so well known, which is the whole Bernie Madoff uh, disaster. And uh, people described him as, you know, incredibly charismatic. What a wonderful person. Um, and so many people trusted him. You know, family members gave him his money, friends, big trust, churches, uh, the, opera organiz the Opera Society of New York. And uh, at the end of the day, he tricked investors by... 64 billion, you know, in one of the largest Ponzi schemes ever. So, um, but very often it's innovate, lack of innovation, lack of succession planning. Most family companies fail between the third and fourth generation. And failing not necessarily means they, they go bankrupt. But they might not have succession planning and then they sell the company. Um, so to, to have a midterm planning and to, you need sometimes, and also to, to see disruption, uh, success. People are very optimistic people, so sometimes you have to f have somebody in your organization who is the unthinkable for you, uh, and actually to see the world outside uh, what is actually happening and uh, and have your antennas out of, of you know, sensing change and and, uh, and of environmental issues around your company. I mean, the reason the call one of the The book, as you said at the beginning, is called The Illusion of Inv Invincibility. And that was one of our major observations is that essentially when 
when things are going really well, this is probably the moment of maximum vulnerability. It's a bit like when you score a goal in, in football or whatever. Often you, you get a, a goal against you two or three minutes later because you're still, you're still distracted, you're euphoric because you're doing very well. And that was one of our major observations. The time, as Andreas just said, the time to be asking the difficult questions is when things are going really well in a company. And that's very difficult for human psychology. That's not an easy thing to do. I think it's always easier to look back and say, oh, I would have done it differently. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, as they say. And I always try to explain it in a way where the company's doing really, really well. And then say the CEO says, oh, by the way, we need to look at this new technology. It's just starting off. It's actually produces worse results at the moment, but we need to pull resources that we desperately need for our cash cow here. And we need to pull resources and money and put it into something that's risky and we don't quite know how it's going to turn out, then obviously everybody's going to say, are you crazy? So that's kind of the, the especially if you have uh, shareholders and they want a good return and they're like, are you insane? What are you proposing here? And that's one of the dilemmas of what they face. And I think that's so, so hard. So going from from this point, is how do how do companies get out of this the dilemma, so to speak? You have to adapt proactively. I think one of the dilemmas is that very often very senior people and, and the CEO and top management sort of overwhelmed by the uh, by the success and if you don't and if you're too much involved in the operational business i'm a big fan of being involved in the operational business on one side but on the other side if you don't spend sort of 30 40 percent of your time in in mid and long-term strategies leading a organization being at a family company mid-sized company or large organization if you're just too deep into the uh, 24-7 into the operational business, you lose sight of the uh, outside world. And and then suddenly somebody comes along which plays maybe with a completely different ball game. Um, and but he's touching your turf and, and enters your turf and uh, and then very often it's too late, like we've seen uh, with a number of companies. Like you know, look at, at, at the whole blockbuster world, you know, where, where we had we used to have video stores everywhere and uh, yeah, and then later on we had CDs and now is everything streaming and it goes beyond streaming and and this whole you know, large industries you know printing cds and and uh or, you know renting out uh videos has just vanished you have to stay but while while you know streaming uh in china was already a technology an existing technology and it was an experimental stage in a number of other places so you could have seen it but you know looking back where you can be a smart would a uh, easily looking backwards but uh, to sense this sense the future you need to have time to to go out and go to markets and talk to customers and, and even just talking to customers is not good enough because they don't really know what they don't know so like having a new nobody of us would have said i need an ipad you know but once we try experience it and and, and liked it and you know we love uh, or many of us love it you know my ipad is my my laptop so i don't really use my laptop anymore but i didn't know it until i actually saw it i wouldn't have phrased it out to market research people say well, what would i really looking for something which looks like an the ipad looks today you need to have that antennas and and space in your time and and you know, and people who, who scout for you to feel the market and and trends it's funny that you mentioned blockbuster i, I remember where the netflix ceo wanted to sell his 
company and Blockbuster was doing extremely well at the time. And the, I believe the Blockbuster CEO said, well, I'm not really interested. Your business is niche. Um, and there was a similar example from Bettelsmann where they were debating, I think, in the early 2000s if they're going to buy Amazon. Essentially, they concluded their analysis and said, well, they're too small, so we'll just wait until they get bigger so we can buy them. They did get bigger, but yeah, let's talk about regret. If we look at, you, you mentioned a couple of times, top management. In your view, what makes a successful CEO so he doesn't get into the position? We always have this view of a successful corporate leader that is charismatic. He knows everything. He's all, he has foresight. Uh, he's very sociable. He commands uh, respect. So what, in your view, makes the successful CEO? Maybe I, I mentioned a couple of, of characteristics of a successful CEO. And one is one is the one that I just mentioned, you know, adapt proactively. So for us, successful executives spend more than their time on, on long-term goals, challenges and risks. And so they they can also consider crisis management as part of their job, Yeah, prepare the organization for these kind of reversals and, and setbacks. The other one is, um, which you might not think of, you know, in first place, but top of our list is deciding and conviction. It is better to make decisions than not decide. So in, in this world we are in now, with more, you know, the WUCA world, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, there's only limited time for analysis and, and consideration. So quick and effective actions are becoming more and more important. And one of our, in our research, you know, it came out that very often there's a saying, you know, they say, no decision is also a decision, but but that's actually very contraproductive, you know. A decision to take, to spend three, three more months on analysis might be a decision, but you need to communicate it. But the paralysis of the organization, because top management is not deciding, counterproductive. Other one is engage what we call engage for impact. So what that means is sound stakeholder management and network. It's one of the most important business uh, characters and, you know, to be really connected to an information advantage and also greater certainty than when it becomes comes to decision making. So for us, this is an important key to success and, you know, maybe one more to deliver reliably. You know, this is not surprising, long lasting and demonstrated success is very important. So maybe one of the quotes we had, we saw is sort of board and investors love us. So you, if you really look into when you hire a CEO and you look into history, so do you see really this reliability in, in delivering midterm and, and long term? While we were searching for the book, and you picked up one, a major chapter is about leadership. Uh, we, we, we came across a very interesting study in the Harvard Business Review from May 2017, so relatively new. Uh, and it's called, it's called the CEO Genome, basically what makes CEOs successful. And one or two of the aspects Andreas mentioned uh, were, were observed in that study. And one very interesting aspect of it was uh, they also made the observation, having interviewed literally thousands of successful and less successful CEOs, uh, that they found that actually slightly more introverted CEOs were more successful in the long term, which goes against a lot of what we would call our sort of common common wisdom. You know, the typical CEO is to this day is a tall, white, male, charismatic, expressive, talkative, extrovert. And in fact, they found out that those people were actually, to some extent, slightly less successful. It's quite a paradigm shift, I think. And, uh, you know, coming from my HR background, it's very interesting to, to observe that the selection systems we used to use at Bayer and that are still in place in most companies, like, like Assessment Center, 
tend to favor people who are extroverted. So often a lot of talent, a lot of potential gets missed and gets lost in that type of selection process. So that's something also to think about going forward. But that was a very interesting part. And in fact, there's a, there's a website, CEO Genome, www.ceogenome.com, where readers can actually take the tests themselves to see where they would uh, rank in these uh, some of these criteria that Andreas just mentioned. Yeah, I'll be sure to link those in the, in the show notes as well. I, th- I, th- I thought that was a, a particularly interesting part of the book. And I think the first time I've actually heard that, and that's been confirmed actually through another study through the University of San Diego, where they did the CEO extroversion versus the cost of equity capital, where they analyzed, I think, uh, almost 80,000 quarterly earning reports and conference calls over like a nine-year period. And they basically concluded that the most extrovert CEOs had valuations that were 20% lower than the group led by the least extrovert executive. So it seems to confirm that study as well. And I think, uh, I believe Susan Kane was one of the first that she had a very, very well-researched book to the topic of introverts. And she has a lot of studies in there as well. And that confirms not only what you said, but also the, the CEO Genome Project, where I think she has this famous quote where she said, there's zero correlation between being the best talker and having the best ideas. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think that was very, very interesting that you <laughs> highlighted that in, in your book, because I think that gets a very bad rap in terms of, oh, extroverts are always the better leaders, including that in your book. So, Paul, you, you mentioned that kind of gets missed in the uh, selection process. What can we do to not make that mistake or at least reduce the risk? Well, a typical coach's answer to that um, is, first of all, awareness. That's for me half the battle, to be just aware of this bias. Those human we think we're objective, or many of us do, but in fact, we're a very subjective species. And just understanding that there is this intrinsic bias about being, and I've had, I've fallen into the trap myself. I know Andreas has, where we've been in an assessment center or at a selection process. We've seen somebody do a fantastic talk, and then, then they carry on with what's called the halo effect there. And they basically, uh, we spend the rest of the day proving that we were right. We got this good impression of the person at the beginning, and we thought, this could be a really good new manager or trainee or whatever. And we then spend the rest of the day confirming it. And we become blind to the less strong side of this person. So for me, the half the battle is the awareness and then examining your your uh, selection tools and processes that they don't that they're not biased towards extroverts. And I mean, I used to be not a fan of paper based uh, tests, so uh, psychographic tests or whatever you want to call them, uh, for as part of the selection. Um, but I would change that these days because that's where the introverts often shine much better when they sit down with a piece of paper and they give an hour to work out a, a case study or whatever, and they come back with much more depth and detail than than the very charismatic extrovert who's just impressed us all with a super speech or a super presentation, but is actually not uh, not as well qualified perhaps as as uh, as the introvert going forward. What would you propose? to reduce the risk? Is it paper-based or is it much more than that to increase the chances of getting a good leader versus just one that looks good on on paper? Well, yeah, I think first of all, whether we want to call it paper-based, but what I would call intellectual tests in a selection process. So going into depth is one area to look at. Again, make sure that the, the general methodology is not favoring extroverts by its very nature. Uh, and also, I'm a big fan of multi, what you would call in German, the vier Augen Prinzip, so multi-eyes, so multi-observers, uh, but ensure that these observers are also diverse. It's no good having six uh, white males in their 50s, uh, who three of whom playing in the same golf club or three of whom were Bundeswehr officers, whatever. Uh, you need diversity. You need old and young. You need male, female, ethnic variation uh, to really ensure that you are getting all the perspectives uh, that you need. And of course, the younger people in there, the more junior people need to be empowered 
to say what they think. You know, it's no good if they're sitting there, but they know that if they uh, if they contradict uh, the CEO or whatever in the selection process, that could be a, a career limiting moment. So, so there's a lot of cultural work and training that needs to be done to make this uh, to make this more efficient. But we're seeing, I think, in the literature the and and the, the, the study you you quoted just now sounds very interesting. Just this awareness that that the selection methodologies we've been relying on for the last thirty odd years are not necessarily f- as fit for purpose as they thought that as we as we we had previously thought and maybe maybe one add-on you know when we had one of our interview partners the ceo of of intersport uh, he gave us a very good example of you know great leadership in the interview process so you know when he invites very senior people the ceos he normally interviews very senior people and he takes on very young people like even interns to talk about the digital world to ask questions about the digital world and you know new technologies and others so he has a one or two co-partners in the interview from different age groups and genders and diversity you know normally as a ceo or very senior person you would say well i can i can run an interview i'm you know able to do a structured interview i understand the world i run the company but one of the big challenges today is you know are we asking the right questions are we are we still in our own patterns asking questions and to have some on your side from which is maybe 23 years old and uh, uh, just came from the world might have totally different questions to the new head of marketing which obviously states that he understands the digital world but you know you can challenge this with with an interview partner different age group if that's really the case and and we were kind of stunned by you know it's so simple such a simple idea and i have incorporated um, incorporated this in into my life you know i had a, i had in my uh, when i was chairman of a large organization i had a i brought in this indian lady who Uh, was there uh, as head of staff and uh, she asked you know fantastic questions to the candidates really made them sweat but i would have never thought of these questions you know the way i asked them so that gave me also just listening to her and listening to the candidate gave me an additional perspective from a totally different angle and that's just a very good insight of, of one of our interview partners. Interestingly enough, the same top manager that Andreas is referring to also talked about antenna. He talked about this sense of what's right and wrong and what will work and won't work. Uh, some people call it their gut feeling. Uh, others talk, talk about it as being their antenna. But he said, you know, you need to understand that this has a half-life. And he said something like 10 years. You know, you come out of university, you're in touch with what's happening out there in the, with, the, with the younger generation. This slowly degrades and is added. It's, it's augmented by other types of experience. But you have to be understand and you have to be humble enough to admit to yourself that maybe you're not quite as in touch with what's going out there as you used to be. And this is a skill that we don't always see in top managers, sort of humble and reflective. And, uh, and the way to get around it is exactly as Andreas just mentioned, to then make sure that you've got a diverse people uh, in your interview process or your selection process. So having more eyes, having more perspectives on that applies to, I think, a lot of things. And that's definitely uh, something to keep in mind, which I kind of find very amusing in the selection process. So when I went out of uh, university or applied for jobs, I found it so easy to game the system because I knew exactly what they were going to ask. I knew how to answer. And I found it so comical that it was so easy to, to do so. And, and that's kind of quite shocking. And then that kind of maybe explains why some candidates get preferred and go into leadership positions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite quotes from the book was from a, a, another CEO that we've spent and a, and a senior board member who we've spent many, uh, many years working together with colleagues and also in consulting roles, uh, who said, as far as he's concerned, the most important decision you make as a company is who you who you employ. Uh, but at the same time, often it's an area that is, that is uh, 
but it is not properly focused upon and is not given enough time and dedication, management time and dedication. So uh, if that's, you know, in terms of messages to take from the book, that would be from my perspective, one of the most important messages. This is such an important decision, get it right and invest resources into getting it right. It's pretty shocking how much uh, resource costs over a year or a five-year period. And then we only take maybe in total four, five, six hours. We talk to that candidate. Yeah. I don't know what, what the length is for CEOs, but that's quite shocking. Yeah, that's eye-opening, actually. Absolutely. Bad hires really cost money. You mentioned top managers and CEOs a couple of times. In your two views, what makes a successful CEO? Do you have some examples where you say that's very that's how a CEO should act and, and behave and run a company? Yeah, I would, you know, let, let's take one which is really well known. And, uh, and I've used this now a number of times in our speeches and presentations and workshops, which is Jeff Bezos from Amazon. And he has one of the reasons why Amazon is so revolutionary is, is and I recommend everybody to, to look at the Amazon leadership principles. And we know a number of people inside Amazon, obviously, if you can have a very controversial Amazon, like it, love it, uh, or not liking it, and you know, taking taking the margins of book writers, and you know you can have have positive, negative stuff, but they're incredibly successful, and they have very strict uh, and very successful leadership principles, which uh, I have seen now a number of companies, you know, like kind of copying them, but he's copying pieces of it. And let's give me a few examples. You know, number one leadership principle, leadership principle in Amazon is they call it customer obsession. Yeah, leaders start with the customers and work backward. And uh, and Amazon leaders pay attention to competitors. They obsess over customers. And you don't see that, you know, if you look at leadership principles of other companies, the customer comes up in values and customer comes up in the vision and we want to be, you know, serving our customers best, etc. It doesn't come up very often in, in leadership principles. But that's, in Amazon case, is number one. Number two, and I mean, they're about sort of, 15, 20 leadership principles, I just give you three or four. So number two is ownership. So what they call is leaders are owners. They think long-term and don't sacrifice long-term value for short-term results. That's very strong message, you know, for, for leaders. And they act on behalf of the entire company beyond just their own team. They never say, that's not my job. That's the number two principle in the Amazon leadership principles. And they push this very, you know, they, you know, know that at Amazon there's no PowerPoint you need to if you have a project you have to put it down on half a page people look at at this at meetings so meetings are very fast very efficient you have to pre-read uh, there are no sort of 30 40 50 200 PowerPoint slides doesn't PowerPoint doesn't exist at Amazon and this is why their number three principle is called invent and simplify so what they you know what they mean is that sort of leaders expect or require innovation and innovation from their teams find ways to simplify. And uh, if you look at the complexities of organization, etc., etc., that's something also a very strong message to, uh, to, the, uh, to the team. So as we do new things, we accept if we maybe are misunderstood for long periods of time. That's a sentence in the leadership principles of Amazon. So uh, just to actually to give that message to their, to their own team that you might be pushed back. And uh, they call it sort of, it's not an experiment if you know it's going to work. Uh, and that sort of backs up innovation and, and people uh, who do things. And, you know, maybe one, number four is, number four is called leaders are right a lot. Leaders are right a lot. They have strong business 
judgment and good instincts. And then number five is hire and develop the best. We talked about it a little bit and it you know, goes on with insisting on high standards. Etc. But, uh, you know, everybody can just access the net and in their own language, you know, access, the, they exist in basically all languages uh, and you can look at it. And, and that's fascinating how they approach the world. So, uh, but to also have the rigidity to, to follow that through, you know, as part of the success. And connectivity, obviously, you know, that is also in there. But, you know, from my personal point, to stay connected, and we talked about that that earlier, stay connected to the world, to actually go out. And very, very few CEOs who actually spend a day with a rep, when they, when you, you know, normally as a CEO, you spend 30, 40, 50% of the time also visiting countries, etc. And I know very few CEOs actually, you know, they're in Italy and they take half a day to visit customers. With a normal rep, not just the star customer. They visit people who don't buy for their products. So this connectivity to actually touch the market for me makes a good CEO. I think uh, Amazon has a track record to back it up, and Jeff Bezos seems to be a very reflective guy. I think it was in your book some quote about uh, even Amazon or Jeff Bezos doesn't believe he might not be around in 20 years. So his job is to delay that future decline uh, as, as long as possible. Yeah. And this is coming back to something we said earlier on, that uh, just the mindset to actually admit that we may fail uh, is helpful in it's being about being pessimistic. It's about being realistic that our business model may not be as relevant in 20 years time. And if the largest, one of the largest companies in the world has that, the CEO pushing out this message all the time, you know, what a strong message to be permanently aware of what's going on around you, permanently ready to change and in a constant change process. And that's the sort of reflectivity and humbleness, which would, I would add to what Andreas just talked about, which I would expect to see in modern and successful CEOs going forward. Uh, and, and perhaps the second aspect picks up on what Andreas just referred to. The, if, you, if you're going to define values... As a, as a CEO and as a company, that's, that's a good start. But you've got to then make sure that you actually stick to these values. You know, we've both had experience in, in companies, both from outside and from inside, where a lot has writ been written down about how we should behave. But a lot of people, particularly at senior management level, don't always stick to these rules. It's kind of the rules are for the other ones and not for us. And, you know, one of the more old-fashioned statements we had in our book is, in our, our opinion, leadership, good leadership at whatever level, be it CEO or senior management, middle management, is all about setting an example. You know, do it. Do it as well. Don't just talk about it. And, you know, I, just to give you... Paul just triggered this, you know, it just came across my mind in one of our last speeches and I try this out now a number of times. One of the one of the comments from the audience is very so how do I get my people better aligned and uh, uh and, and senior management better aligned, etc. So we, we had a we had an activity or speech uh, inside a company and they said, Yeah, how do we get better aligned? I said, Why don't you take a minute and you write down the top three of your six values and uh or as much as you can get on paper. Just now, take a minute. And you could see, you could look at the papers, you know, with them, then every people were reading it out. And you have the top 20 people of a large corporation, you know, they mixed up leadership principle with values, and values with mission, and with mission. And uh, uh, so I said, well, you know, you want your people aligned, but you guys need to get aligned. So this, you know, if you have an elevator pitch, you have one minute, each of you, if you don't, can't tell your number one to six of the values, 
um, all of your leadership principles, the way you do it here, you know, will not work for the rest of the company. So leading by example is easily said. It's and it was on the wall. You know, it was if you walk outside the meeting room, it was everywhere on the wall. But uh, you know, to have it present and and you know, I, I say this very self-critical. You know, because I had that. I also felt in that during my time at at, uh, at one of the vision processes, I said, write down the number five, what one five of our vision, and I had also a couple of leadership principles in the vision in my vision statements, um, mixing it up. But you know that that's that leading by example and have it very clear to to the organization from the top is uh, is an art and uh, and hard work at the same time. Especially it's outside of the comfort zone of most CEOs. That's why, you know, I say, okay, I want the CEO to participate in the workshop. You really want the CEO? Is yes. He should lead by example. So why should I follow the CEO if he's not uh, willing to, to walk the walk? Absolutely. In your book, you had a quote, the higher you climb, the more windows uh, turn into mirrors. I found that fascinating. And that kind of seems to not contradict, but kind of play against that force of being reflective, being aware of your invincibility. How do you, I mean, can you explain that quote and, and what that actually means? Yeah, I mean, basically, one observation of particularly large organizations is that they have an enormous inertia. They're enormously, they spend a lot of energy in, in maintaining the status quo. Uh, you know, things are moving well, things are going well. So they have a sort of, uh, they're, they're very stable organizations, which can be a positive thing, but can also be negative. And uh, that means a lot of people like what they're doing, they've got good jobs. And it often happens around a CEO that the higher up this person comes in the organization, the more the people around him begin to, or her, begin to manage this person. And they're essentially saying that the further up you go, you get into the senior executive office and suddenly you're not looking out windows and seeing what's happening in the organization like Andreas was referring to just now. Um, you're not getting out there talking to the, to the shop floor. You're being surrounded by your staff people and the lackeys, if you like, who all they're doing are holding mirrors up to you and telling you what a great you are. And it, depending on your, <laughs> your personality, this can be actually a very, a very seductive situation to come into because it, it's, re, um, it's supporting and reaffirming the things you think about yourself, why you got up to the job, your strength. Uh, but it can be very dangerous because it begins to isolate you basically from the rest of the organization and you become managed by a group of people around you. And this is, we've seen this happen in our own experience. It's in the literature. And this is what we mean by the Hall of Mirrors, basically. Does that also kind of explain why some politicians seem to be detached from reality or completely disconnected from us ordinary citizens? Yeah, it's the same principle as, as Paul mentioned, you know, to, to go out to, the, to your constituency and actually uh, face the voters with their concerns and, uh, and, and, and then bundle. This is this is an N equivalent to one. Is this just one opinion, or is this? Do I feel basically the audience? Uh, and that's tough work, and, and needs discipline. And uh, yeah, very often you get detached. You know, I've, I know a number of politicians really well, and it's a really tough job uh, to be a politician, especially in today's world. Um, but um, you need to find the space to actually feel the true world out there. Uh, um, Otherwise, you get surrounded by uh, by the structure, organization, and processes, which is part of the you know the political uh, game. And why is that so hard to get outside the bubble? Is it just an issue with outside of my comfort zone? Because it seems you know for for an outsider maybe that that hasn't been a top manager, so trivial to go out and ask somebody for feedback. Yeah, I would say it's not hard. You need to orchestrate it. 
because the system doesn't actually you know let me give you an example you know when i when i was in the living in the us i was responsible for the ex us business i had 96 countries uh, probably 20 really important countries to to manage a 6 billion business 8000 people so you need to when you go to a country if i if i don't give an you know pre agenda so you know, I come in the morning, I have a meeting with the management team, I have lunch with the management team, and they probably organize a dinner with the management team. So I spend a day in the meeting room, we may drive to a restaurant, I've, and I fly to the next country. So that would be what the organization thinks is the most appropriate and the most easiest to handle. Uh, so if I don't tell them up front, I want to have maximum two hours of presentation, then I have a you know, sort of a sandwich lunch with young trainees and people, sort of people who are potential in the organization. In the afternoon, I want to see customers and at least one or two customers which don't buy from us. And during dinner, I want to meet people from the industry and uh, important stakeholders. And I want to go to a restaurant where, I don't know, the secretary takes her family to and not to a, I don't want to go to a French restaurant in Seoul. Um, uh, I want to go to a normal restaurant and eat kimchi and, uh, you know, where I see other normal Korean families uh, just to feel the country and, and, and stay in touch. Yeah, that's all possible. And then, you know, after a while, the organization understood that's, that's what I want. But otherwise, I would have just, you know, if I wouldn't have said that and orchestrated then and explain to them why, why this is important to me, I would have just, you know, spent time in meeting rooms and look at, at slides and, uh, uh, and then have spent a whole day with the same people and that's uh so i would say it's not hard but uh obviously you know organizations don't love necessarily if you jump hierarchies and i've never been given sort of let's call it uh, instructions or orders across hierarchy but i need to feel i need to have you know i take the liberty to talk to a shop folklore guy if i'm walking through the factory I don't need permission of uh, you know the country manager, the factory manager, uh, the supervisor. Say, can I talk to the shop floor person? Oh, just you know, ask questions and talk to them and uh, and feel. And you can have you know. I, uh, well, let me give you another example. I I try to have uh, you know, once a month uh, in my operational time. Uh, I was I was head of a big country and uh, with you know, a thousand with a with a shop floor organization, and I had breakfast with them, and they could bring two questions. Uh, to that breakfast, and there were no people from HR, or with all of my respect to you know good senior HR people, and no other. It's just them and me. And after a while, you know, after the fourth or fifth breakfast, people you know understood that I'm really interested in their concerns, and they asked me very direct and very personal questions about the company and about rumors. And I said yes, no, it's not true, and this is true, and I could feel the organization. A different way and and also made me accessible uh, to them uh, middle management not necessarily loved that you know when i came back from these breakfasts i had a lot of additional ideas uh, they were not necessarily a fan of that activity but uh, for me it was important and it's not hard you just need to do it yeah i think that's the good news is a it's possible and you have to really want it i think that just reminds me of how how much corporates or large organizations hate uncertainty that advice that you give so okay you don't have a predetermined agenda so you just kind of wing it for the rest of the day uh, is i think really helpful to to get out of that bubble but not always popular with the local organization <laughs> in the book you also mentioned or referred to management by walking around can you explain that yeah sort of the uh try to you know visit the uh when I was 
running countries or region to at least we had in my former company we had about four thousand people in a, in a plant in so to walk through the plant is important you know when I was running a country I sort of once a month I walk through the plant I, I just feel the structure organization is not just you know before Christmas wishing everybody happy Christmas sort of to do this regularly and the organization actually sees and feel you but let me give you an example from an area in good hotel you learn this at, at when you when you are at hotel hotelery school you know when you want to become a hotel manager it's part of basically your job description that you should spend 20 30 percent of your time wandering around your hotel and if in top even five-star hotels if really well in the lobby uh, in the real good hotels you see the general manager in the lobby you see him you feel him you see top management of the hotel and they are basically in touch and actually in the book we describe one of them your officer he was a long time long-standing manager in the intercontinental chain he's, he's a good friend of mine and i learned a lot from him of of you know the fast decision making empowering people and the processes and you know sort of the immediate action and you know, in the morning they have this this morning briefing what they call the morning briefing which has been forgotten in many companies because many companies for a long time had the morning briefing to look at the mail together and, you know this mechanic you do this you do that and due to the today's modern world this has been forgotten but in hotel management the morning briefing every day so for 20 minutes half an hour every department has that you know i have no issues okay next one they say i have this issue i need a decision i need support uh i i have this issue but i can handle it myself and you know quick decision making of solving issues and you can you can feel this is just an operational issue needs to be fixed immediately or this is is there a pattern where we need to change processes or is there a bigger pattern where we need to change our strategy towards customers and, and, and clients. And you only feel that if, you, if you're in touch. And I don't think you don't, this goes far beyond hotel management. You can do this in, in other companies too. And uh, feel structure people and your organization. It makes a huge difference if you're suddenly visible. You know, I know companies where, when they tell me I've never ever met the CEO, I've not even seen him. I know he exists. I see him on pictures on, on you know once a year in a town hall or Christmas message. But uh, but for me it's a kind of a anonymous. And Paul and myself, we were we were last week we were in Switzerland in an event and we were sitting we were sitting in a dinner table with the chief evangelist of of Google and. Uh, I know the guy, you know, he's very, I know somebody else in Google. I mean, Google is a huge, huge organization. But I know now that this person is very connected to the Google world, to normal people, to somebody who works in Ireland in a, you know, just started to, is out of university. But he says, yeah, yeah, Frederick, I know him. I, he's, he's well known in the Google organization. And uh, uh, we can approach him anytime. And he's the chief, you know, innovation uh, head of Google. So that, that makes you feel that, that, yeah, he's connected to, they know they can approach him, and he's he let down barriers to, you know, are you, are, and are you approachable? Are you actually picking up the phone? I also had a, maybe one more example. I gave instruction to the, to the uh, uh, reception that if there's a call and somebody says, I want to speak to the CEO, I'm a customer who has a complaint. If I have time, I take the call. Try to connect from time to time, you know, very often I sit in my office, I do something, I, there's a call coming and there's a customer on the line who has a complaint. And, you know, and you, you cannot imagine the surprise of these people calling 
I mean, they're taking the efforts. I want to speak to the highest person available, to the CEO if possible. And I pick up the phone. And I can tell you the best, uh, well-handled complaint is the best customer forever, if you handle it well. And there's, you know, I can listen to them. I see what happened. I can understand processes, you know, and and uh, if we can solve it, we solve it. And I call back this person. I say, we solved it. And uh, you, I connect you to this person who will actually fix your issue. But that has, that has tremendous effect, not only to the customer, also within your own organization that the CEO is actually ready to pick up the phone for a customer who wants to talk to him. Actually, extremely commendable uh, that somebody's willing to do that. I remember when I was uh, in university and doing investor relations for a company that was noted on the stock exchange, my, my responsibility was every time the bank called and wanted to speak to the CFO, I would say, oh, he's not here. So always to block the calls because they wanted to know, oh, why did the, the stock go up? Why did it go down? And they do that every single day. And obviously my job was to block all that. So it's quite the opposite from how companies are normally run. And I think one bad example how not to do it is I've did some consulting a couple of years back for a company. A billionaire took over a struggling production company. And the first thing he did, he had all the production and factory workers come together. And he said, well, I don't want you to approach me. I don't want you to talk to me. And he reiterated that. That raises a big red flag. And that, that, that's where I said, okay, I don't want to consult this company. Is if, if a CEO is running a company like that. Yeah, so he's creating his own hall of mirrors without even uh, needing the people around him to do it for him. So in, in the book, you also spe speak a lot about uh, the ego of CEOs. Can, can you explain why that creates a problem and what ego you're actually referring to? Yeah, I mean, let's be clear, just to start off with uh, every, you know, we don't want to put uh, ego in some kind of a problem corner. Every human being, uh, healthy human being needs an ego. They need a degree of of self-appreciation and self-love, if you like. The thing is, the thing is that having a strong ego is often associated with uh, with being assertive, with having strong belief in yourself and a desire to win. And these are good things, uh, fundamentally. And they're also the type of the type of competence that often help you move up an organization up to more senior levels. And that's also, and there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is, is when these characteristics start to become, it's like, it's, you know, Andreas and I both worked in the pharmaceutical industry uh, many years. It's all about dosage. Every medicine, every substance out there is toxic if it's given in the wrong dosage and too high. And so if you start to overdose on assertiveness or start to overdose on a desire to win, then it can be problematic or you become self drunk on your own, uh, also on the trappings of power. And this is what we decided to, to discuss in, in the chapter about ego. And we took, took the example of, of Indiana Jones, who was something of a hero, you know, the archaeologist, uh, Steven Spielberg's uh, fictitious uh, archaeologist, who was something of a hero for me uh, in the early 80s. I, I used to love films. But at, at the end of the day, what does Indiana, Indiana Jones do? He goes around finds this uh, beautiful piece of treasure, but he leaves behind him dozens of destroyed temples and piles of rubbish and, and rubble. And so you have to ask yourself, that was our analogy, negative analogy, saying, you know, what was it all about for Indiana Jones? Was it about him and finding the treasure or was it about uh, the greater good of archaeology? Well, I think the answer, every listener will know what the answer to that is. So we basically discussed the, uh, the problems, of, first of all, what the, the importance of ego, but also the problems of uh, when an ego gets out of control and how dangerous it can be to the person themselves. But more importantly, how dangerous it can be to an organization. You know, in times of, of crisis, turmoil, like the financial crisis, there often seems to be a lot of justified or unjustified, a lot of animosities against uh, CEOs and their huge bonuses. Um, but what makes these CEOs 
think they still deserve these huge bonuses, thinking of Lehman Brothers, Volkswagen, etc., despite their company being under dire threat or even going bankrupt. I mean, what drives that behavior? Is that really just the ego, an over-exaggeration of the ego? Is it lack of empathy? Or, I mean, what drives this behavior? Um, I would start somewhere else. For me, the issue is maybe sometimes with the CEO, but for me, it's the lack of courage of the board. Uh, you know, if you have a weak board, who actually let the ego grow and grow, and that then, you know, you need a strong chairman or chairwoman and, uh, and board members, uh, basically for governance uh, and on strategic issues, but also on leading the company uh, on working with, uh, with the CEO. And, you know, the bonus is not defined by the CEO, the bonus is defined by the board. So, you know, if you have issues like with the companies you mentioned, it's also very often of what is now the clawback clauses that you know, CEOs and board members have to pay back damage, which have which they have been creating short term and long term. And uh, in every board member contract I signed today, I, you know, I insist on having a clawback clause because uh, that that didn't exist until recently, and many companies don't have it yet. But you know, I think it's it's for me it's mandatory to have it in there. So can you explain to the listeners quickly what what a clawback clause is? Clawback clauses. So if if you out afterwards that you know strategic or operational decisions have been done by uh, were wrong yeah? very often you know if you pay short term you have a great performance short term like let's take Volkswagen you know they, they have still great performance with the diesel but uh, was all based on on the fraud or misconduct uh, from the compliance point of view so you know now now they have you know 20 something billion on damages But at that time, you know, two, three years or four years back now, there were short-term bonuses paid out and they need to pay back. If you have a clawback clause, you can regain these bonuses. It says, well, this bonus was paid on wrong assumptions and you have to pay back that bonus. And you, same short-term, same long-term. This is what a clawback clause is, that, that people need to pay back bonus they may, may have received some time ago, which was based on... Yeah, wrong assumptions and wrong, you know, and, and misconduct. So for me, it's an issue of the board, not necessarily of of CEOs. We have to refer what happened earlier that ego's gone too big, and and you know, ego's got out of hand, and they were surrounded by people who were still telling them they're doing everything right. And but that's that's chairman leadership, which you need to to look at, and board leadership. And uh, very often, when, especially when things go well, boards, you know, tend to get also to laissez-faire to say, well, everything is going well, we have our board meeting, everything is fine, CEO is doing a good job, and so why should we dig deeper, or why should we really exercise governance uh, the way it should be exercised in today's world? And from my perspective, it's it's no longer four board meetings a year and, and everything is fine. You know, So that's heavily disputed in the sort of board world, especially for the more traditional board members believe that, that you cannot interfere. But, you know, a company strategy needs approval by the board. So, you know, I can ask questions. I cannot just sign off and say, well, it's it's a suggestion by the by the CEO and the management and, and yeah, it should be fine. Yeah, it should be fine can be a terrible mistake you know if you don't so i have the right as a chairman or board member to ask questions dig deeper and because when I, if i prove it i'm actually uh, legal, legally also binded that that my, my signature is there so you know 
know, I can ask questions to the CEO and even question him if I have a feeling that, you know, you're not doing the right thing. So in, in your view, because you've been a manager in Germany and in the US, I believe, are German companies or American companies better or worse at the, the, at the board level in, in controlling these decisions? I wouldn't say better or worse. I don't see much of a difference in, the, in that one. You know, we have two dear two-tier boards here in, in more in Europe. So that means that, that as a as a senior manager, you cannot be in the board. In the US, you still have one board. So some of the management members are in the board when you have external board members. Legal governance in the US is very strict and, and fines are very high, but it doesn't mean, you know, if things go wrong, they, they can go wrong on both sides. And very often, it's not necessarily done deliberately. You know, it's the Nokia example. They had a, Nokia had a strategy. It was just the wrong strategy. Yeah. The big difference between I would say Germany and US is, is in the US is much more performance orientated. So you can have a bad year, but not two. And in in Western Europe, you have you you might live much longer on something you did five years ago, where everything sort of congratulated you, and it takes longer to take people off a position but in the u.s is it's like in soccer you know you can have uh, uh, if you don't perform you go down to second league or you're out we, we've talked a lot about ceos values the hiring processes do you think in general that the functional hierarchies that we have today in large corporations are still effective at meeting the challenges we face today in a uh, vuca world i would say You have to distinguish between, you know, what is new work and what is right work and vice versa. If you look at our debate earlier on having to an organization, making sure that information gets to you, that you get an unlimited look at, at structures, you don't necessarily need hierarchy. It's good to see always work hierarchy fee because everybody knows that, you know, you have a title uh, at, you know, when you're at your core. So you, you don't need your hierarchy when you, when you basically operate the organization and you have you know information gets through within seconds you can do you know with very good intentions you can make a bad mistake in a big country and that can bring down the whole corporation the 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 reaction time way information is flowing that needs to be completely differently organized so that that it doesn't flow if you have a major crisis somewhere in this country which might affect the reputation of the whole corporation if you take a big organization uh, as an example can't take you know it take days and weeks to to make its way through the organization it needs to be sort of immediately communicated and that needs to that's more mindset and and uh, leadership thing than hierarchies you need to organize work but it might differ from industry to industry if how how different you organize your world yeah i think it's it's always funny to me is where the the tendency today is to go to cross-functional teams and teamwork but at the same time a lot of corporates are compensating their employees based on their functional silos so departments and that to me is very contradictory to from the perspective of an employee okay i'm supposed to work together across departments but I'm getting paid based on my department and my loyalty is to my people, to my department. That kind of, I don't know what your view is on that, but it seems to kind of contradict kind of what their companies. Yeah, you are, well, absolutely. You know, it's sort of what you measure is what you get. So if you measure in silos and, and compensate in silos and bonuses in silos, you know, they, they hear, they, they tell the other guys, you know, we hear you, but uh, <laughs> we have a, we are on a different scheme. Like, you know, if technical operations uh, <laughs> is organized, by you know reducing reducing uh, the number of of items and uh, and you suddenly have a customer who wants 
it's five different packages, you know, they, it, this contradicts. So you need to bring down a lot of resistance to actually get this through the organization. Unless it's a you know very big customer, but uh, you need to that that kind of alignment is very important. You know, as you said, that's key. And uh, sometimes it's not very visible because it's far down in, in you know in the midst of the organization, and that's something that needs to be carefully looked at. Yeah, I think another example that highlights this this point really well is a gentleman called David Marquette. He was a former nuclear marine captain that took over one of the worst performing nuclear submarine divisions in the early 2000s and transformed them into one of the best performing divisions. And one of his principles that he led was don't push information up to authority, push authority down to information. Now, when we think to hierarchies, well, they tend to operate in a different manner where people at the bottom have the info, but not the authority to make decisions. So they create systems to channel that information up to authority. Yeah, I mean, it's and in other words, basically. Uh, but empowerment perhaps works well in the military because empowerment without rules and processes is chaos. Whereas in the military, you have a certain set of processes. So it's perhaps a quite a good place to make empowerment actually work because it's a term that a lot of other organizations struggle with. Um, so interesting example that you mentioned. Yeah, I would, I would use another phrase which I like much. It's called achieving results through others. And that's a bit beyond empowerment because you, you actually give up not only the power and empower, but you want to receive, you know, achieve results through others, even through hierarchies. And that's, uh, that makes the organization, you know, very strong and, and people get, the people get the reward who actually should receive the reward. And, uh, that is also a tremendous factor on motivation. So to kind of sum up this this whole thing, maybe you can give the listeners your top three recommendations for CEOs that want to potentially avoid a future decline of their company. I know it's a very generalized question, but maybe listeners could still profit from like three key takeaways. Oh, just three? Okay. Maybe even five. I'll give you five. <laughs> no, 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 let's go for three. I would say my number one would be those who, who can't imagine failing simply have too little imagination. Um, yeah, and I'll perhaps pick up on the ego topic as we, we talked about a few minutes ago. Essentially, for me, real leaders are not egomaniacs, but they're fighters for the cause. And maybe one more oh, from my side. Those who can combine ambition with critical self-awareness can achieve truly great things. Wow, those are really three excellent recommendations. So if the listeners want more of you two fellows, they like what you said, where do you want them to, to go or how can they contact you? Yeah, if maybe you could just refer to that to our website. We have a joint website, Andreas and I, uh, which is focused around the book and some of our other joint activities. So www.inca-inc.com and Inca with a C always. So I-N-C-A hyphen Inc as an incorporated I-N-C dot com. Okay, I'll be, I'll be sure to include that in, in the show notes. So now it's that time again to reflect upon the interview. Obviously, there are many reasons of why companies face a decline, downfall, or get disrupted in an almost seemingly predictable fashion. Andreas and Paul's book, adds a additional layers and reasons of why companies fail. Hopefully, from the interview, you could tell that they not only have extensive top management experience, but they're also very reflective and aware of their own shortcomings and mistakes. They don't come across as know-it-alls, but instead share some of their mistakes along their journey. Unfortunately, we didn't have time to cover all the reasons of why organizations fall. There are just too many to cover, even more that are mentioned in the book itself. Though book can possibly cover all 
all of them. Check out the book to see what other reasons there are why companies fail or decline. I've highlighted some other reasons for why successful companies fail in my comprehensive guide, Why Companies Need to Eat Their Children. I'll link that in the show notes below as well, just to add to the discussion and add some more reasons briefly without being intended to be exhaustive. The first aspect I want to mention, and this one is actually pretty obvious, but it gets overlooked, is lagging indicators. What are lagging indicators? Well, revenue along with profits tend to be what economists call lagging indicators. These indicators can confirm long-term trends, but they do not predict them. We remember BlackBerry, right? BlackBerry also fell prey to what I call the illusion of the infinite S-curve, essentially believing that the growth would continue indefinitely. So when a product life cycle or technology adoption curve is nearing its end, revenue commonly is at its peak, so it lags significantly behind. And guess which one Wall Street wants to see? Well, that's obvious, the revenue curve. But even though the cyclical nature of a product life cycle are extremely well understood and have been studied extensively, it's still pretty shocking how many companies and CEOs seemingly willingly ignore the fact and make themselves prime targets for a decline, bankruptcy, or even disruption. So CEOs shouldn't rely on lagging indicators such as revenue to help them predict what's coming next because we all know that's impossible, but that's often easier said than done. You know, we often hear, oh, companies need to innovate while they're so profitable. What makes it so hard? Because companies need to divert, and this is something I mentioned in the podcast uh, briefly, is they need to divert resources and money to to uncertain prospects, or in other words, innovate, while their business is still booming. But in reality, their product life cycle is nearing its end, something a lot of companies tend to forget. And the other aspect I also want to mention is what the authors of the book Stall Points call threat rigidity. Now, they analyzed 600 companies over the past 50 years to find out what, why the revenue growth stalled for most companies, and they found approximately 87%, so almost 90% of the business, will hit what they call stall points. Once a company stalls, it rarely reaches its pre-stall growth, and often leading them to lose two-thirds of its market share and will have almost near zero or even negative growth rates afterwards. So when companies reach these stall points, they become impatient to show growth, which creates a very hostile environment for innovation to succeed. And as a consequence, or as we all can imagine, this environment actually prevents innovators from taking the time to find and grow their ideas. And it's these kinds of situations where companies have the tendency to respond with an organizational behavior known as threat rigidity. So when under threat or in crisis, organizations narrow their focus to what has worked for them in the past, and they do extremely well. So for instance, focusing on their core business or their current cash cow, and also freezing innovation and becoming more hierarchical or top-down in terms of management control. The problem with this threat rigidity is that it ignores changes in their environment and limits their ability to grow and innovate, making the matters even worse. The last point, and we talked about this quite a bit in, on the interview, especially with Paul, the topic of charisma and leadership. So I want to highlight some of the studies. I'm not going to mention all of them, but there was a working paper by researchers from Harvard, Stanford, and the Chicago University that examined 70,000 conference calls involving over 4,500 CEOs, found that financial performance tended to be poorer in companies led by extroverts. 
to be fair, the Harvard study also says it's a little premature to say that poor financial performance is caused by extrovert CEOs. Nonetheless, the negative association between extroversion and performance is consistent with the argument that extroverts like to dominate. And they add that it requires a obedience and submissiveness that may not be conducive to effective corporate decision-making. Peter Drucker has also written about this, and, and I'll read uh, his quote. He said, among the most effective leaders I have encountered and worked with in half a century, some locked themselves into their office and others were ultra-gregarious, some were quick and impulsive, while others studied the situation and took forever to come to a decision. The only, the one and only personality trait that effective ones I encountered did have in common was something they did not have. They had little or no charisma and little use either for the term or what it signifies. So that's quite interesting. And then there was also a famous study from the uh, infamous management theorist Jim Collins, where he said many of the best performing companies of the late 20th century were run by what he calls level five leaders. That's essentially a fancy word for exceptional CEOs that weren't really known for their flash or charisma, but for their extreme humility coupled with intense professional will. Now, what we have to keep in mind is it doesn't necessarily mean that extroverts are per se worse CEOs than introverts or that introverts are automatically better than extroverts. And if you like this this, this topic, and I'd, I'd also highly recommend you read uh, Susan Cain's hugely successful New York Times bestseller from 2013, I believe, which emphasized how there is zero correlation between being the best talker and having the best ideas. If you haven't read the book, I can really highly recommend you do so. It's an extremely well-researched book. I believe she took seven years to write it, and you can really tell. And according to the press, it's one of the most important books published for a decade. The last point I want to mention, and this one uh, is important, is the topic of survivor bias. How much of the cited examples of company declines are chance or have some luck involved? Or more specifically, do we think that survivor bias could be a thing here? Let me explain what survivor bias is. Survivor bias is essentially a logical error or a form of selection bias of focusing on aspects or criteria that made it past a certain selection process and overlooking those that did not, typically because their lack of visibility. And this can lead to false conclusions. This can also lead to overly optimistic beliefs because failures are ignored, such as when companies that no longer exist are excluded from the analysis of a financial performance. It can also lead us to falsely believe that the success in a certain group have some special property rather than just coincidence. Correlation does not prove causality, as we all know, be it in the hiring process or when forming a theory about why companies failed. It also causes the results of studies to rate higher because only companies which were successful enough to survive until the end of the period are included. So an example of this would be mutual funds, where company selection of funds today will include only those that are successful now. Many losing funds are closed and merged into other funds to hide performance. That's also a dirty little secret of the industry. The tricky part here is it's almost impossible to avoid, but generally pretty easy to anticipate. But just being aware of the survivor bias can lead to better decisions. So what does that mean? It means that we should develop a habit of always questioning the underlying narrative of theories, books, articles, and even my podcast. So always questioning what could we be leaving out, not on purpose, but what are the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns? What are the aspects we didn't consider or we don't know that we don't know? So that's just a good habit to have. Again, it's impossible to 
to get right. And it's impossible to consider all possibilities and knowing the unknown unknowns, but just something to keep in mind. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. Just head to our podcast website, innovationalcorrectness.com or gammabeyond.com, or just follow us on LinkedIn. There you will also find long-form articles, videos, and other podcast episodes about innovation and transformation. And if I could ask you for one small favor, it would be this. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Overcast, or the podcast app of your choice. It really helps us out by encouraging more people to find our podcast and reach hard-to-get guests. Last but not least, if you have any suggestions, for further episodes or guests that we should invite on our podcast or just have feedback, you have three options. Emailing us at info at gammabeyond.com, filling out our anonymous feedback form at innovationalcorrectness.com, or leaving us a voice message with your question or feedback so that it can be included in the podcast and all listeners can profit. Just go to innovationalcorrectness.com. Links are in the show notes. I've been your host, David Luna. Until next time.